Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, and it is my pleasure today to have as my guest, Dr. Robin Odegaard. Let me give you a little background on Robin. Robin is a former competitive beach volleyball player with a doctorate in high-performance business psychology. Now, if she worked for the mob, Robin would be the consigliere, or in English, chief advisor or confidant. Think Dr. Jennifer Melfi on The Sopranos. She's both a high-performance business psychologist and a sports psychologist. Her clients are mostly met around 40. That is about the time they realize they are not invincible. They are the face of their brand, successful, high-energy, fast-paced, intensely private. They have quick minds that can think through and accept or reject solutions rapidly. Robin, affectionately known as Mental MacGyver because her expertise is in real-life complexities. She knows how to ask the tough questions to drive creative and resourceful solutions using a Swiss Army knife of whatever knowledge, tools, ingenuity, and abilities are available. Each of Robin's clients gets an individual ringtone in her phone, and when you work with her, no topic is off limits, and there is no such thing as TMI or too much information. She has real-world peak performance experience, a top-notch formal education, and she has been changing the lives and businesses of high-profile leaders for over 15 years. I think with that, that should be a wrap on the podcast. I think we're good. But, <laughs> That's a pretty good introduction, Dave. Thank uh, you. Oh, you're welcome. But we have we got a lot more to talk about. But just a, briefly in terms of how Robin and I crossed paths, I was referred to Robin for your Quick Hits uh, podcast by Mario Fields, a mutual friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And Mario is also the voice behind the intro and outro for the Teaching Journeys podcast. Nice. Which means as I get older, my world gets smaller. And I had an initial session with Robin, initial conversation, and, and I, we hit it off really well. And I have become kind of a quick hits junkie. I've been on your, your quick hits numerous times. And mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things about Robin, apart from her expertise in terms of working with high-profile business leaders, is her ability to create a welcoming, inclusive, safe atmosphere where people from all different backgrounds can share their perspectives without fear of having to defend their beliefs, draw lines in the sand. It all works. And I've been on panels with individuals who have much, much different backgrounds than myself. And it all works because you set the stage for all of those thoughts to be welcomed and come together. And it's a beautiful type of synthesis. Well, thank you. I'm very fortunate that the people who choose to be on Quick Hits, like you, are open-minded, willing to share their opinions, but also willing to learn and grow. And that just makes for a great opportunity to have an amazing conversation every time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so anyway, what we're, we are going to talk about today, 
is essentially your five-point paradigm for creating success out of chaos. So, but before we get into that, Robin, please tell our listeners, our viewers about the event or events that have shaped your life path or shaped your experiences in terms of what you're doing in the present. Well, I have a lot of chaos in my past. As you know, you know some of my story, Dave, but I'll share it here for your listeners. Um, real high level, I grew up in a cult. When I was 18 years old, I was married off to my first cousin, who was 11 years my senior. And he promptly moved me from California, where I grew up, out to Charlotte, North Carolina. And when I got to California, when I got to North Carolina, I learned three things very quickly about him. One, he was not very bright. Two, he was very badly in debt. And three, he had a drug problem. So trifecta, good job, Dad. Yeah. Um, but those three things actually ended up being silver linings for me. Because he was in debt, I, he wanted me to get a job. He needed the money. I had to work. And so I got a job. Married women in my family don't work. Because he wasn't very bright, he couldn't keep the grooming in place that, that the cult had put on me about women's roles and who they're supposed to be and what my place was and the subservience and all of that. He couldn't hold that in place. So that combined with the fact that I was working and had access to people who weren't in that kind of space really changed me, helped me grow, let me become a different person. And the fact that he had a drug problem, eight and a half years later, he threw me out. He told me it was because I was lazy. And my dad called me and gave me the riot act and said, if I had been appropriately submissive, I would have been able to make the marriage work. But what I learned many years later, what had actually happened is the drug cartel that he had gotten involved with needed me out of the way because they wanted to steal his identity, which they did do. He almost ended up in federal prison because I had fixed his credit and they wanted to use his credit. But they knew that I did our family finances and that I was going to recognize what was happening and be able to stop it. So they needed me out of the way. So they convinced him that I was holding him back, that he could do better than me and that he should get rid of me. And so he threw me out. And I've got to tell you, if a cartel wants to get rid of you, that's the pretty clean way to do it. So thank you to the cartel for that. Wow. That's, it sounds like, uh, I mean, just a lot of different, different challenges you were faced with and categories that you had to navigate. And, but it just proves that, that there is a every dark cloud, there's a silver lining. So obviously you were able to transcend that, learn from it. And that's brought you to who you are in the present. And, uh, being a past addictions professional and counselor, I'm very familiar with the chaos that uh yes. that addicted individuals come from and create mm -hmm. you know because of their circumstances and unfortunately there's a lot of individuals that get um that are i don't know victims is not really the, the word that i want to use but that are the the product of 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 their um their chaos so well, that's, yeah. uh, that's, and I know that's just a brief snippet. That's just the very first part. That's like the first eight years. Then that's when I got to play competitive beach volleyball though. So that was great. I, I got to be a competitive athlete, had to figure out how to be an adult. I did make my own mistake. I did. My next marriage was totally my own fault. I married a narcissistic closeted bisexual. Zero out of five stars do not recommend, but he moved me from Charlotte up to Long Island. And when I got there, I couldn't get a job because I was just a pretty girl with a high school diploma. I didn't have a network there like I did in Charlotte. And he promptly moved to London, England to take a job there and left me on Long Island. And so he said to me, we don't need your silly money anyway. Why don't you just go to college? 
And that's why I got I had the opportunity to get an undergrad, a master's and a doctorate in six and a half years. I paid for it with the money from my house that I had sold, but he was paying my living expenses to keep his tax status here in the U.S. So that was a bonus of that that relationship, which ended very badly. And just so your listeners know, I'm in a very good relationship with a very good partner now. So I, it all ended ended up well. Russ is amazing, my current husband. Yes, and from what the posts I've seen on social media and from the way you've talked about him, he is an amazing partner and somebody that is a, a great compliment and, and uh, companion. So, um, But yeah, ner- narcissist and relationships kind of don't work out in terms of... It doesn't of, work out at all. Um, just because of the lack of the empathy factor and, and the self-serving uh, ten- tendencies that they have. The lying was my biggest thing. I had two rules, be nice to me and don't lie, and he couldn't follow either one of them. Well, yeah, I mean, he couldn't. I mean, because he, you know, he didn't have the potential for empathy or the, the capacity to tell the truth. And there, is there more? This there, is... are, there are lots and lots and lots of stories that I could tell you. We could take up the whole hour with my crazy life. But what I can tell you is that the life that I have now, if I had had this life in my 20s, I probably would have thought it was boring. What I realize now is, no, this is peaceful. Having a good partner, being confident that he's going to be there, that he's going to care for me and I'm going to care for him. Having a little dog I teach to do circus tricks. It's peaceful and it's very different from the chaos that I had in my 20s and 30s. So I'm very fortunate to now have a more peaceful life. Well, and you know, and and a lot of individuals who come out of chaos and find control, there's a couple of things that, from my experience, that could happen with that. One, the control is intimidating because it's too, it may be too boring. Mm -hmm. So they may self-sabotage that to recreate the chaos so that they can feel, so they could feel alive again. Or the second thing is like you, they kind of just embrace it because the, the, the chaos that they've experienced in, in, you know, previously was just too much for them to bear. And it was just like, I, I've had enough. I want some, some, some stability. I didn't do it right away. The best advice I ever got from someone was Robin, you are resilient. Stop making decisions that make you prove it. That self-sabotage, that making decisions that cause chaos. I went through that stage for sure before I got here. And, and, you know, too, and I, and I've had to be resilient, you know, my own, my own background and my own history. But there are some days I wish I didn't have to be resilient. I wish I didn't have to, to prove this over and over that I'm resilient again mm-hmm. um, because I, I became resilient through the product of, you know, personal tragedies and life-altering circumstances. But sometimes I just wish I could be me without being resilient. Right. Just live a calm life that doesn't require me to constantly have to keep getting up. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So is there any more before we move on? No, let's move on. Let me right. let me not take up the whole time with my story. Well, we're going to have to have you back so we can do part two of your story. We're going to, say, <laughs> have, to we're going to have to do this again. So, but anyway, please tell our listeners and viewers about what the five point paradigm for um, creating control out of chaos is. So this started because when I work with clients, I'm very organic about where are they, what do they need, what tools of mine can I bring to the table. And the challenge was it's hard to explain to clients how I can help them when it's just like, you know what, trust me, my brain works really well. And so I, I wrote this paradigm kind of as a, a loose outline for this is kind of how I work with clients. But what I found was just having the outline can help some people who aren't even my clients. So let's talk about kind of what it looks like. So the very first part of it is 
you got to figure out what the issue is, like clarify what's what's going on. And the question I love to ask is, what would you like to be different? And the reason I ask that question rather than what are your goals or what are your dreams or what does your ideal life look like, which I, I do ask that question sometimes too. But the first question, what do you want to be different? Is it really allows someone to talk about what's not working for them? It gives them permission to really say, this is what's broken. And that helps me understand where they really are. And we can then get to what are your goals from that? What, what is it? What do you want to be? Which gives you, so that's step one. What do you want to be different? Step two, craft your tr strategy. What are you going to do? So this is problem deconstruction type things. Problem deconstruction, backcasting, pre-mortem, all of that kind of stuff, right? What are we trying to do? What's the strategy? Then the third one is, okay, tactical plan. You got to equip yourself, resources, skills, knowledge, processes, all of that. So that three parts of it, all my organizational development background, that's exactly what all of that is. And it's very prefrontal cortex, logical brain heavy, right? Here's where it gets hard, though, because step four, that's when we start talking about what are your psychological barriers? What are the things you know you should be doing, but you're not doing them? And that's got to be tough to get individuals to talk about those barriers. And I think particularly for the clients that you deal with, because with men, it's very difficult to admit our vulnerabilities because we are supposed conditioned to be strong. The problem solvers feelings tend to be something that we have a very, you know, love hate relationship with, I think mostly, mostly hate, uh, because <laughs> of what, uh, what feelings have been told to represent them and as a, as a being a sign of weakness and vulnerability. I also got a believe it's also got to be tough for them to identify what it is they, they want to be different, but yet empowering because probably nobody's ever asked them that. It's interesting because by the time someone comes to me, something's going sideways. People don't come to work with me because their life is all peachy keen and great. Mm -hmm. They come to me because something is wrong. They're overstressed. They know they make better decisions if they have someone to talk to. They may have tried therapy and realized that a therapist that knows nothing about business asking them, well, what do you think you should do? isn't helpful. No. And having, and they've often even had executive coaches, which are great humans. I have so many friends and colleagues who are executive coaches, but they're very much focused on the business. Mm -hmm. If these guys that I'm working with, they have spouses and siblings and parents and a whole life of stuff that they can't talk to their executive coach about because it's just inappropriate for that relationship. What makes me different is when I say, what do you want to be different? anything, life, business, I, bring it all and let's see what we can figure out. And my superpower is getting guys to feel comfortable and be able to talk about that stuff. I used to be a middle management supervisor in an addictions facility. And one of the things I always made it a point to know personally what was going on with the individuals I supervised, because a lot of times what needs, what, what may not be, you know, recognizes that what's going on at home is going to impact what's going on at work. It's going to impact, impact decisions that leaders make. It's going to impact how they supervise individuals. And it's, it's, and for me, I always have tried to understand what personally was going on in somebody's life. So if their work performance was effective, I had something to go back to. What's going on in our lives sometimes isn't inextricably separated from what goes on at work. It's intertwined. It never is. You no. only have one bucket of mental ability, mental toughness, 
emotional space, psychological, whatever. Like you have one bucket and work takes out of that bucket and life takes out of that bucket and your personal stuff takes out of that bucket. And when that bucket's empty, it affects everything. Yep. So if your life is in chaos, your business is not going to be okay. Especially if you're the person who is the cog that holds the Venn diagram of all the things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if those, those parts are managed, um, then there's going to be continual chaos. Mm-hmm. And there will be no control whatsoever. Right. Exactly. Whatsoever. Exactly. So what are some other, other points in your five-point paradigm? We talked about what's wrong and then the structure and the tactical plan. And we talked about psychological barriers. I'd like to talk a little bit more about psychological barriers. Here's the thing with like psychological barriers. Oftentimes, they are not your fault, but they are your problem. You do have to fix them. You are responsible for managing whatever is. So psychological barriers can come from your childhood. They can come from past relationships. They can come from all kinds of interesting places. So it, it may not be your fault. This may be something that was you know, put into you when you were 10 years old. However, if it's negatively affecting your life right now, it is your problem. And that's where the taking ownership part rather than placing blame for psychological barriers is a huge deal. Getting people to the point where they're like, you know what, you're right, I need to be responsible for this. So that's one thing we work on in psychological barriers. And I think that's important because I think the more we can facilitate or help individuals take responsibility for their for their destiny the more we become less directive and we are not right. we're not working harder than that individual to help them achieve their goals take ownership it may not be your fault but it's what's contributing to the barriers that i'm experiencing now my lack of productivity in the workplace my lack of fulfilled relationships outside of work and within work and I think the more we can get individuals to, to say, hey, this, I own this, the, the yeah. greater the chances for success down the road and for leading a more fulfilled life is going to be. Absolutely. And I use a combination of motivational interviewing and clean language to help people move towards and make decisions for themselves. So I don't ask them, what do you think you should do? I ask them, what hasn't worked? Well, the nice thing about the motivational interview approach, it meets every person that you work with where they're at and people are at different levels of motivation to change anyway some individuals may see that what they're doing is fine they may be in like the the, the uh, pre-contemplation stage of change and they see nothing wrong with with, with what they're doing but our goal isn't to get them from pre-contemplation to action is to get them to at least contemplate that the way they're doing things may not be working it's recognize taking, the chaos recognize the chaos and do education around what chaos looks like what intergenerational trauma looks like, what other factors may contribute to chaos in our lives. Motivational interviewing actually was is something that, you know, we used a lot of in the latter stages of my career as an addictions professional mm-hmm. um, because it worked very well working with resi- clients who were very resistant to change, but yet we can still see where, where their levels of motivation were and work with that to get them gradually towards towards action and towards redefining their own life and taking ownership and being the co-creator of their own reality in conjunction with the universe. I love that I can say motivational interviewing and you know what I'm talking about. I love yeah. that. It's been empirically validated in a variety of different research studies over a variety of different problem areas. So um, I'm, I'm a card-carrying you know, believer and 
advocate for motivational interviews. I'm glad you incorporate that with your clients. Oh, yeah. I use it with sports psychology. I use it with business psychology. I use it a lot. And clean language has some great questions that really build on top of motivational interviewing really nicely. Well, and here's the other thing I like about it, because and I'm sure you've run into this, Robin, with the, with the clients you've worked with, is that they have, they've come from circumstances where they have ambivalent relationships with authority anyway. Mm. And if we look at addiction as kind of an example, before the philosophy in terms of working with addicts was content-oriented confrontation about their denial and basically breaking them down until one day either we're going to be motivated to change or more often than not, we'll just comply to get you off your back. <laughs> um, and so the motivational interviewing approach, really what that does is I think it diffuses a, a lot of defensiveness from individuals who think, well, mm -hmm. here's another authority figure. Here's somebody who's going to tell me what to do, how right. I should live my life. We're not doing that. Not my job. It's not my job. It's just, <laughs> where do you see yourself and how, do you, and how, can, how can we help get you there? It's more right. of an empowering model as opposed to a directive or disempowering approach to therapy. A dance rather than the wrestling match that therapy often is. Yep. Ab absolutely. Another part of my paradigm that the motivational interviewing really helps with is that the, the cause of the problem is in the past. Whatever's happening today is because of the past. Can't change yep. that. But the solution is in the present. What you do today determines whether today is going to be a continuation of the past or a new step on a different path. Yep. However, the motivation to actually do something different today is your future self. So the challenge is how do you take motivation from six weeks, six months from now and pull it into today to allow you to make change? Because you know the easiest thing to do is to allow today to become a continuation of yesterday. That's right. And I'm a firm believer that the past is our greatest teacher. But if we stare at the past constantly and we ruminate over what could have been or what should have been, it prevents us from living in the present and creating the future that we so desire. And, um, you know, and I'm a firm believer that the past is one of our greatest teachers anyway. You find ways to, to, to utilize that very effectively in terms of, okay, what can we learn from what you did in the past so that we're not repeating the mistakes of our past? How can we use that to build on the, the present and the future that we want to create for ourselves? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love to ask my clients is, do you believe the voice in your head? Because your voice in your head is talking to you about things you've done in the past and how that's going to be who you are forever and ever. Mm -hmm. So if you ask, do you believe the voice in your head? You're getting past information. That's right. And you're just, you know, and it's just, you're just, those are just past tapes of what you should have been or what you could have been, not who you are or who you're capable of being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always, I tell individuals that I, I speak with is that choose to see the world through your own eyes, not through the eyes of anybody else. That's hard instruction right there. It's difficult to implement because the, those past voices continually come up, particularly at the slightest hint of failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So should we go to step five of the five-point paradigm? That sounds like a plan to me. All right. So step five, you need to nurture your support system. And what that means is what are the people, places, things, and habits that are either helping you and moving you forward? And what are the things that are hindering you and keeping you back? Because if you're going to step onto a new path, you need to lean into the people who are helpful, the places, the things that are helpful, and lean away from the things that are going to be pulling you back. And this can be uh, relationships. It can be emotional stuff. 
So you've got to cultivate your relationships, embrace your spirituality, whatever that looks like for you. If, if you have any spirituality, go there. Prioritize your health. I cannot tell you how many people self-sabotage their success yeah. because they ignore their health. That is a huge thing, especially with my executive clients. And I think particularly, I think there's, there's a connection between mind, body, spirit, and success. Mm -hmm. I really, I really believe that wholeheartedly that if we're, if we're feeling physically fit, everything else falls into place. And I, I basically during, during COVID, I let myself really go as far as weight wise. I, I hit like 252 pounds and then I looked at my, I looked at myself and I can't do this anymore. If I'm going to continue to function at a high level for my students, um, and for any of the other people that have come into my life or that manifest in my life, I need to get myself in physical shape. So I committed, mm. I lost over 70 pounds and I've been wow. able to keep it up for two and a half years. And, and I really firmly believe that that has helped me lead a more, you know, uh, fulfilled, productive and, and active life. And I just feel much better about everything. But I also think how we think impacts how we, how we feel physically. And also in terms of, of outcomes, I like the fact that you talk to them about embracing spirituality or whatever they believe. If they can integrate some spiritual practices to help them to, to develop a sense of awareness about who they are and um, a sense of connection to a world, so something that's greater than themselves, that's going to make them more empowered leaders and more effective leaders. And I think more empathic leaders. Mm -hmm, exactly. And it makes them more self-aware. And I think yep. that's a huge part of being high potential because here, here's the thing about being a high performer. It's not a destination. It's a lifestyle. Yep. You have to do it on a regular basis or it just doesn't work. I mean, I wish that like working out was something, okay, I've worked out for 30 years. I can coast for the rest of my life. But that unfortunately is not how it works. And that's true of any success. What you've done in the past brought you here, but it's not going to keep you going forward. And one of the things I committed to is working out, you know, regularly you know, mm -hmm. during the week, you know, five times a week on the elliptical, doing, you know, some lightweight training, walking when the weather is nice as well. And uh, is it something that I would prefer not to do? Sure. But I realize that if I'm going to increase my quality of life, if I'm going to become fully engaged with the people that I care about and with the things that I'm passionate about, I have to be in good physical shape. I want to be patrolling the halls of Utica University when I'm 80 years old. You yep. know, I, I don't want to retire. And if I, as long as I can keep moving and I can keep physically fit and also put mindful eating into that category, mm -hmm. if I can do all of that, I'm going to be more effective as a, mm -hmm. as a father, as a teacher, as a spouse. Well, and that's what I tell my clients when they tell me, oh, I don't have time to do that. And I said, the thing about your health is you can make time to take care of it now, or it'll steal the time from you later. Do the clients you work with, do they also have a, a lot of financial difficulties? Is the chaos they've created for themselves uh, partly because of their inability to manage finances or not allocate finances accurately, either from a business sense or a personal sense? It depends upon the client. So um, some of my clients, absolutely not. They are, I mean, they have sharp minds. They have financial minds. They do not have financial issues. Uh, for some clients, they are fine, but they have a spouse who spends water, spends money like water. I was just saying spends money like water. All right, I can do it. Um, and so that's a problem. Like, how do you deal with that conflict? And we deal with that. But for my athlete clients who are, you know, instantly wealthy, they went from being 
you know, just a kid who happened to play football to suddenly making literally millions of dollars. Yeah, finance is tough for them and it's hard for them to know who to trust. And that's the challenge is when, when you suddenly come into money from that kind of space, everybody's touching you. Yeah, everybody's your friend. That instant wealth is really, really hard to manage. And knowing like, who do I trust? And so I have like lists of financial advisors and lawyers and people that I can say, hey, if you don't have these people that you can trust, I can help you. Now, often I'm not the first one that they come to. They often come to me already with financial advisors and lawyers and stuff. And then I have to kind of carefully discern: are these good people or are these people crooks that are trying to take this, this person's money? And that's got to be a delicate tightrope to walk in terms of how you disclose that to a client. Um, and it is because who do they already trust and, and what are they saying to them? Because if I come in and I'm like, I think that person's lying to you and they trust them, even if they are lying, I'm going to be ousted, which doesn't do them any favors. No. And the other thing is, and this is another thing I tell my students, you, you go into a therapeutic relationship with the idea that it's going to be long term. Trust isn't going to be built immediately. Individuals are going to trust you more and more to the extent that they're more and more comfortable with you. So what comes out in an initial session may not come out in another session. So if you're going to present that you're thinking like a financial advisor, they may want to take a look at this individual as far as integrity, as far as their business practices. I imagine you have to really time that where you, you present that, where you feel that their ability to trust you is greater at that moment than it was in the beginning. And sometimes that's not even my role. Sometimes my yep. role is just to help, especially with athletes. They need help with the, the sports psychology stuff and managing that and making sure their personal life isn't creating havoc for them on the field or on the court or on the course. And, you know, I, I have a client. This is a, this is a really good example. It's golf because golf is, we all know, a very mental game. And I, I was like, you don't have a golf problem. You have a head trash problem. Mm -hmm. And that's my responsibility is helping him with what's going on with his head trash. Now, if that's being caused, if, if that psychological barrier is being caused because there's drama with his financial advisor and where his money's going or, you know, what's happening, then yes, that becomes part in my pur purview and my responsibility. There's something else I was going to ask you about uh, su support systems. Do you find that as clients become become more insightful about what they need to do to get from uh, to control from chaos, do you find that the people that they have in their support network kind of change changes, or is their support network kind of fluid? Do they keep the same individuals? What have, what have you found with that in terms of how they view support, you know, differently? Yeah, the high-performance executives, the founders and executives, don't tend to have very many people that are close to them, and they've already cordoned off people who aren't good for them, for the most part, not always. Some of them do have still some toxicity in their lives, but they've done a pretty good job of cordoning them off. Um, but that always spills out. You know, if you have a mother who's toxic, unless you cut her off 100%, no contact zero, she's going to create chaos sometimes. And so it can, they can come to me if they're in a situation, like if they're, say they're getting divorced and we can kind of have to decide, all right, what does this look like? Anyone who's been divorced knows that which friends go where and how does that work and who's mad and who's not and what happened. And some of that depends on the story. So as you said earlier, I meet my clients where they are. 
And if they have toxicity, I can talk. Hold on. If they have toxicity in their lives, then it's my responsibility to kind of help them sort that and create boundaries for them. If they need more support, it's my responsibility to help them find those people and make that happen. But that's the challenge that when people come to me is often they're already been burned by somebody. Because you know this, Dave, the world has so many people who claim to be coaches. Mm-hmm. And the coaching world is a, it's a very deep pool full of very shallow people. And it is hard to find a good one. So a lot of times people come to me with a little bit of chip on their shoulder, like I've done this coaching thing and I've done therapy and it's just stupid, but fine, I'll talk to you. And I have to get through that first. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you're right. And there are a lot of individuals who purport to be coaches, but there are a lot of coaches that don't have the skill to really help individuals navigate through complex issues. And that's the same with any profession, whether it's addiction professionals, lawyers, um, there's good and then there's, there's, there's bad. And you just have to, to know the difference. So you have to be resilient too. It took me a long time to find someone who could be my business coach, my person, be a me for me. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to find somebody like that. Well, and I think it needs to take a long time. And I tell my students, I said, look, tell your clients if they tell them to get more than one opinion. I mean, tell them if they don't feel like they're resonating with you specifically, assist them to find somebody who they think can't. What'll happen is that one you'll you'll tell them that you you'll tell that person that you have a lot of integrity that you have their best interests at heart, and you know. And the other thing is that we you know the message is that we're look you know we're not looking to make a buck. We're looking out for your best interest. My business has the a powerful conversation at the front of it. You don't get to be one of my clients until after we've had a powerful conversation, which is two hours of doing the work. And that tells us two things. Are we compatible? Do you like my style? And it tells me where they are in their life. And we can decide, are we a good match together for what you're trying to accomplish? And it also tells you if they're willing to do the work and take what it, to do what it takes for them to get to the next step. Yep. And, the, and, and the work isn't always going to be pretty. It's not going to be taking a deep dive look at ourselves is never, is never pretty because we have to look at the, the negative parts of ourselves and the things that we've you know, the opportunities we've missed, the regrets that we have, and that's not always a, that's not always a, a pretty thing to do. So, And that's one of the things I ask my clients. Do I have permission to push you? And do you have the ability to say to me enough for, for now? Like, do you feel confident enough to be able to say, I can't right now? Because that's important. I, well, it is important to allow clients to find their emotional comfort zone to let you know, hey, you're, I think you're pushing me too far right now. I need to stop here. But with the option of knowing that we can come back to this at, at any time, but that's mm-hmm. a part of building a trusting and healthy therapeutic relationship with the client. Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you, what is, do you feel has been the impact of your, of your five point paradigm program on helping those you serve? And another question, so what makes your program similar or different or unique from other programs that you've seen? So what impact have I had? The impact that I've had is that this paradigm allows me to build that trust to help people quickly. Sometimes in the two-hour powerful conversation, we can uncover some amazing things where they can make change and they can grow. And I know that because I've, it took me years to put this together and to build it, and I've used it over and over. It's, it's just, it's got legs. I know it does. The thing that makes it different, I think, part of it is it's me, my background, my experience, my own chaos 
There's almost nothing a client can come to me with that I can't say, I understand that. I've been there, I've taken someone through it, or I've gone through it myself. So that's part of what makes it different. But I think the psychological barriers part, that part where we can actually look at the really hard stuff and say, okay, we've got this whole prefrontal cortex figured out stuff. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we doing it? What's happening there? That's what makes it so, so powerful. And my client's willingness to go there with me and be like, yeah, I want to do it and I'm not. How come? And we get to explore that. And it's so individual. And it's got to be satisfying, too, because you you bear witness to their their stories in terms of how they got there. And you also bear witness to them redefining the narrative of their lives based on what they've learned and are willing to integrate from your conversations. Mm -hmm, exactly. And a lot of my clients will tell me, you're the only person that knows the real me. I had one client one time say to me, Robin, I feel like I pay you to be my best friend and you're so damn good at it. I don't even mind. Yeah, and I could see where you are so damn good at it, just just be, just because of the contact I've had with you. And I know if I if I was a you know if I was a high level business leader, I'd come to you in a heartbeat if I was oh, if, if I was having issues because you just you know there isn't there isn't any place you're not willing to go, and there isn't anything that probably too much is going to surprise you at all. I mean, from, right? And which is good because um, you know we need individuals who can put up with TMI, so to speak, you know, or exactly. not, won't back down from that. So, and, and I do, I have clients sometimes they'll text me and they'll say, I'm sorry to share so much information. And I'm like, that's the whole point of this. That's why I'm here. Never apologize for taking, getting stuff off your chest and sharing the whole truth with me. Yeah. And sometimes I think that's a reflection of their, well, you're, I'm imposing on your reflection of their, sometimes they're, uh, you know, I, I think, low self-worth. Well, and the cultural belief that men are supposed yeah. to always do it on their own. Like, yeah. oh, it's not and a the, thing. The, the other thing I've learned is I usually find out how a man is feeling by asking them what they're thinking first. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if I ask a guy what they're thinking and then I can ask them, well, how do you feel as a result of that thought? They can access their feelings much differently. But if you ask a guy how they're feeling, you might as well, for most guys, you might as well have them just build a rocket ship and fly it to Mars. They're probably going to have better success of doing that. Because they just yep. don't access their feelings directly. But uh, I have but, to teach my clients that if I say, how are you? Responding, fine, how are you, is not the correct answer. No. And there's an acronym for fine, too, I think, that, that kind, of, kind of sums that up, too, that we're not, as, we're not as fine as the word indicates. So Right. But anyway, just kind of going to the wrap-up portion of the show, just a couple more questions. First, what are one or two takeaways from your life experience that our listeners can, can latch on to to help them through their own life challenges or life path? So the thing I always have to share when someone asks me that is what I said in my TEDx talk, which is when you learn there's no water in a well, stop going there looking for a drink. I think too often we expect people to be able to give us things they don't have to give, whether it's love or companionship or whatever. And we keep going back and we keep saying, give me this thing. And they have no water and you're still thirsty. So when someone shows you who they are, believe them and remember. Yeah, and I also think that people, you, you'll find out who people are more not by what they say, but what they do. And I also, mm. I also believe that, you know, you look at the nonverbals 
and the behavior behind the words. And if there's some incongruity there, trust what you're saying behaviorally is what you're getting. Mm -hmm. If someone says, I'm sorry, it should mean I hurt you. I won't let it happen again. Not stop being angry with me. Yeah, I think for me, when I say sorry, it's it's about owning and it. it's about being accountable. Is that owning that I made a mistake, owning that I misjudged a particular situation or a person's intentions. And when I say I'm sorry, it's I'm being accountable. It's not blaming any. Yeah, you're right. It's not don't don't hurt me or blaming somebody for hurting. It's just I'm sorry I screwed up. And that's right. a difference. So finally, and how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about your services? How can they contact you? Give This is an opportunity to promote yourself for as long as you want to at the oh, end. Oh, thanks, Dave. You're um, welcome. So the easy places to find me, I'm on LinkedIn, Dr. Robin Odegaard, which I'm sure you'll have in the show notes. Um, yep. My website, you can find me at drrobinodegaard.com or it also you can use mentalmacgyver.com. Because, uh, you know, that is my moniker, Mental MacGyver. So MentalMacGyver.com will also find me. And the Quick Hits podcast, which you notice, is on YouTube. So you can uh, search there. And if you look for Dave, he's been on there a few times. You can find the find the shows he's done as well. And and I can tell you just uh, you, how many episodes have you done in Quick Hits House? 600? 600, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would go to Robin's YouTube channel at Quick Hits and access any one of those 10-minute discussions. They are the most enlightening 10-minute discussions that you'll ever run into, just with some really great people that she has uh, she has connected with. She's got a, a very impressive network of really creative thinkers and leaders. So check out, check that out if you want you know, some really, really unique and different perspectives that will really energize your own life. And with that, Robin, thank you so much for being on the Teaching Journeys podcast. I always enjoy our conversations. It's always a pleasure, Dave. You are so much fun to talk to. And likewise. And with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.